Well, welcome folks, for those that are just arriving here. I was saying that we're a bit of a smaller crew this morning, but I think that's, that's actually, that's not a bad thing. I think it's like a real excuse to really be with one another in maybe a more present way. At least that's how I'm viewing it. So we are, we're in a series uh, right now, and the series is about transitions. And I feel like I have to explain that we mean life transitions when we say that. So how do you deal with the transitions of life well? And we all have this one blaring in our face, and it's that we just came out of like a really unusual, probably unprecedented time in the life of everybody of this church of being in a, in a lockdown for like, or a pandemic for two years. So we all felt that this was an appropriate topic to deal with not only that life transition, but also life transitions at large, when we just deal with the mundane things like switching a job, or uh, a child moving out, or the loss of somebody, or like what, what else could it be? A lifestyle change, something along those lines. So I want to tell a story this morning, just to kick us off on that topic. And can everybody hear me, by the way? Back there? It's good? Sweet. Uh, so I'm going to tell a story after I get myself set up here for one moment. And I wisely brought an iPad today as opposed to uh, paper. I brought paper just in case. So I can actually scroll through without things going flying. Okay, so this story. So when I was 19, I would say that my my faith like it was it was not under just the umbrella of my family or kind of the 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 leader of the house which was like my dad and i mean leader spiritually the guy who was like just really active and concerned about us in that way i would say at 19 my faith became something that was a little bit more sincere like it actually had bearing over my life in terms of that i started to act differently and I started to think differently, but then I also started to feel differently. And that was like the good news in my life was, oh my goodness, I have uh, what the Bible calls like an identity in Christ. And it, it blew my mind that I could feel like that uh, confident. I just had never, I didn't, I never felt that confident prior to my faith becoming more sincere. So what happened is that that was starting to change, but then I also realized that God had like a real concern for my behavior. And this is the, you know, like the less sexy side to being a Christian. Like I don't emphasize always this part to my friends that are way more secular than me. So my, at that time, there's lots of movement in my inner world. And I was working at Sandpiper Golf Course. Does everyone know where that is? Yeah. So this is a recycled story, by the way. So you, some of you may have heard it. Actually, most of my stories today are recycled. I haven't been doing enough reading lately, which is connected to like my uh, inventory of stories. So I was working at Sandpaper, which is out that way. And I was now about 20 years old. And I was working there as a caterer to a bunch of weddings. I'm just going to change this for sake of not being distracted. So I'm a caterer at Sandpaper Golf Course, which is a golf course, but also like a resort. And it's this really beautiful wedding venue. So each like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 
and Sunday night sometimes, I would show up there with the, I was the only guy amongst about five girls, and we were, we called ourselves the dream team, and we would cater these weddings, and it was awesome, we all wore bow ties, and we had to like dress really well, and it was like these just, like very elaborate, expensive weddings. And the food, there was just like an excess of food, and it was like the best food, it would be like prime rib, and all the, these different types of salad, and wine and I started to learn about wine at that time because when we when we were serving wine we also had to know what wine we were serving so we would be tasting it but because there was such an access there would often be this these extra bottles around that like our boss would say like yeah you, you can taste it and the extra bottles it's it's kind of a gray area what we can do with the bottles this guy is just saying, switch the course of your talk, Ben. This is bad. <laughs> yeah, so we had these extra wine bottles, and it was a gray zone of whether we weren't allowed to drink them, but we had like a super relaxed, chill boss. So me and a few of my coworkers would like dig into these bottles that had like a quarter left as we're washing dishes in the kitchen. And I felt like I was aware that we were in the gray zone. Like we had never had this conversation. But then like the, I started to feel like a bit uneasy about it. And I had that feeling and I kind of went out, oh, whatever, this, this red wine's delicious. And I wasn't like getting drunk or anything. So um, I kept like indulging in the red wine and it was, it was awesome. And then one day I started to feel like, wow, like this is, this is actually not cool. And I'm taking advantage of the gray zone and I'm making moves that I have no right to be making, because I didn't buy this wine. The, the people who, are, who like purchased the venue for the night bought the wine. And it started like where my, that movement in my faith started to speak to my work life. So I, in a really odd moment, and on kind of a whim of courage, I took out my iPhone and I texted my boss. I said, this is a weird, a really weird text. And I regret that I have to send it but I think I drank a bit too much wine and it was like, like I said, I wasn't over drinking, but I just felt like I betrayed your trust there. And she said, well, like whatever, like it's all good. Like she, she didn't really care that much. But what happened in that moment is that I started to be like sensitive to my conscience in the workplace. And that led to a few other interesting situations. So there was one night, another night, and my role was the banquet captain. So I was kind of the leader of our little squad and I would be the person engaging with the bride and groom and the DJ making sure that everything's okay. And a part of that role was I had to, at about 12, after we cleaned up the venue and it's now 1.30, I would go into the office and I would take the money from the bar, which was usually like a couple grand in the tips, and I would count it and record it all and make sure like there was enough fives and tunies or whatever. And then I was leaving I was walking out, I'm way out there at Sandpiper, it's dark, it's this like really beautiful, almost California-esque place, and I'm walking out and it's warm, and I'm in my bow tie, and my car's in sight, and I have a 35-minute drive home, and I like to grab some of the goodies for the drive home, so I have a Diet Coke and some fruit, and I'm like looking forward to this drive, I just blare my music, and it's, you're on a highway, you know, I'm safe or whatever, but I'm enjoying it. And I'm looking forward to it. So I get to my car and I see the DJ packing up as well. And I say, hey man, have a great night, like excellent job. So, and then I get to my car and I'm like, okay, I have a nice drive ahead of me. And then the, the, the same voice that was like 
bothering me about the wine or that same indication about the wine was indicating to me, uh, go, go back to that DJ. Just see if you can go help them. So I was kind of just, I did it. Whatever. I'm, and I'm humbled at this point in the job, at, the, at this job because I had this wine experience that did like a measure on my anxious conscience. So I get back out and I go to the DJ and I say, hey man, I see you're loading some stuff. Can I, can I give you a hand? And he goes, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Go back in your car. You're good. So I get back in my car and it's like, yes, I'm on my way home. And then guess what happens? I get that same indication like you got to, And it's in your spirit and it's hard to describe and put your finger on. And it's not really a voice. It's just a sense. And it was like, you got you to gotta go back out there. And I'm like rolling my eyes in my car like, at God, like what's, what's going on here? And I had a feeling like this was, there was something happening a bit beyond um, my own capacity. So I, I get back out of my car reluctantly, late, I've just already done this once before, and I go up to the DJ and I say like, hey man, I got a weird question, but like, is, is there something significant happening in your life tonight? You know, just like, I'm on, I'm on a whim. And he said, yeah, yeah, there is. It's the, it's the anniversary of my wife's death, and it's really hard to be at a wedding tonight. What a, what a wild story, eh? Just, and I, I don't glorify myself in it. I was just kind of submitting to what was happening in my inner world. We're turning to a story this morning where Jesus has an interaction with a person that held massive opportunity for them. And Jesus, with his crazy relational ninja tactics, got to the heart of what was truly going on in this person and spoke to them with compassion and brought forward a challenge of how they can change. That's the passage we're going into this morning. It's called The Woman at the Well. Uh, it was in like the, the handout we had. It's a familiar passage. It's John 4. I'm going to read it slowly so that we engage with it and really capture kind of what's going on. So if you have an iPhone or a Bible or you just want to listen to my soothing voice reading it slowly, <laughs> which that's, if I was you, I would go for that one. <laughs> but why don't I pray so that we have an awareness that uh, we are this small community here today, but there's also uh, just a really kind of grand God with us who wants to speak to us as individuals this morning. We, we know that, Jesus, that you're present in our lives and we can all point to the series of events that would have us in a community this morning and seeing this as a wise choice for us. So we're here and we're present and we want to be sensitive to how you might want to speak to us this morning or speak to us through this book that we are trying to humbly submit to continually. And uh, thanks that we're in community, that we're a family with one another, and we, have, we can care for one another, and we show up here with that attitude. So in your name, Jesus, amen. So I'm going to, it's a little bit of a long, it's not really long, but it's like 18, oh no, it's 26 verses. So I'm going to perk up with enthusiasm if I see <laughs> that you guys are kind of like getting glazed eyes or, or nodding a little bit. But let's dig in. Also, oh, one thing. This is a thought I had this week. If I'm up here as a trying to be a, a teacher, I'm trying to teach. That's, that's what we do on Sunday morning. What would the role of you guys be then? A learner, a learner yeah. And that really brings off, that really changes the dynamic for me. If I'm a, 
I'm a teacher and I'm, and I'm a learner all the time, but that you guys are learners and it, it lessens this thing and it makes it more equal. Like we're both, we're both, we're all playing a role here this morning. So let's, let's read that with that in mind, if that's helpful. So verse one, John four, I'm reading from my iPad. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So John, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food, so he asked her to give him a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And I want to stop there and just point out three really unusual things in this passage. And the readers of that day would totally capture what these unusual things were. And I think we're going to notice that the, how the author even wrote this story, it's sending cues to us to capture how bizarre of an encounter this really is. So my first one is, and it's stated in the passage, those two groups do not interact with each other. And I don't know a ton of history about those two groups, but Jews and Samaritans don't interact with each other. And Jews don't go through Samaria because Samaritans are going to attack them. And that's, that's not my own opinion. I, I got that from M.T. Wright, who is much wiser than me. And then Jewish, women, uh, Jewish men, and Jesus is a Jewish man. And at this point, people are aware of who he is. So he's perceived to be a, a few different things, but the ge a general opinion of him is that he's, he's educated and he's wise, and what was really unusual was for an educated, wise Jewish male to be interacting with a female, one-on-one, -on -one, kind of when nobody's there. So that's another odd piece. And then the third odd piece, and this is where we really see what the author is doing, which his, the author's name is John. You know how he said, and it was noon? That was indicating something to us, is that... People at that time, they wouldn't, they wouldn't go to get water at noon. They would go in the morning when it's like what it is now. It's pretty cool. Or they would go in the evening. So why in the world is this woman by herself going, going there at, the, at a really unusual time? We're going to find out. So verse 10, Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock? Are you greater than he is? Living water? What? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. It's a different type of water. It's not the well water. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This water has movement in somebody's life that, that heads into eternity. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I'm coming at noon. 
not coming with anybody. The woman, he told her, go call your husband and then come back. He's just being directive. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not even your husband. What you just said is quite true. Boom. Prophetically, Jesus knows what's going on in this woman. There's no prior relationship, but he's tuned in to what's truly going on in this woman. And I understand that to be quite a, quite a moment of tenderness, but also Jesus is not pulling any punches on how he's disagreeing with some of her lifestyle choices. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. She's disarmed. She, she sees who he is. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father, Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You, Samaritan, wor- wor- you Samaritans worship what, we do not, what you do not know, but we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And Jesus is just like, he's just stating his convictions here. Yeah, you Samaritans have beliefs, but they're not the right ones. That's a, that is a bold statement. Like that, you know, I don't really say that. Yeah, your whatever, your agnostic beliefs or your Buddhist beliefs are off-center. So he's just stating his, the facts that he has. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worship, worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers our Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah. I know that Messiah. And he's coming, and he's going to explain all of this to us in clarity. And then Jesus says to her, and if your Bible's in front of you, you're going to read the mic drop moment. He says, that's me. I'm, I'm that guy. I'm here explaining it to you. What an incredible story, okay? I read it slowly so that we could feel some of feel some of it, you know? And it's so cool that readers at that time would just have an awareness right away of what's going on. So I wanna I wanna tell another story. This is another recycled story. It's just a morning of stories. And uh, this is a story written by an author named Brennan Manning, who's kind of an obscure Christian author because he was a Catholic priest as a young man and then became an alcoholic. And I think his, his marriage fell apart. And then, but he, he's a brilliant mind. He's like a, he has a scholarly mind. And then he kind of refound his faith with all his brokenness in mind. And then he started writing. And he's produced some pretty amazing works. So the story that uh, I'm going to share today is about when he was at uh, a rehab center. And he tells this story of this man who arrived at the rehab center who had like no ability to live in authenticity and just have a really sober view of himself. So I'm going to read it. And I got to pull it up here. The the book is called Ragamuffin Gospel. It's awesome. I like highly encourage that read. It's not a theological one, but it's one that like, you know, will get you in the feels and you I was reading it at about that time when I was 20 when I had that sandpiper experience. So this is him. It's going to take a few minutes. One of the indelible memories goes back to April 1975 when I was a patient at an alcoholic rehabilitation center in a small town, small northern town in Minneapolis. Minneapolis. 
The setting was a large, split-level recreation room on a brow of a hill overlooking an artificial lake. Twenty-five chemically dependent men were assembled. Our leader was a trained counselor, skilled therapist, and senior member of the staff. His name was Sean Murphy O'Connor. Though he normally announced his arrival with the statement, it's himself, let's get to work. Sean directed a patient named Max to sit on the hot seat in the center of the U-shaped group. He was a small, diminutive man. Max was a nominal Christian, married with five children, owner and president of his own company, wealthy, affable, and gifted with remarkable poise. How long have you been drinking like a pig, Max? <laughs> Murphy O'Connor had begun his interrogation. Max winced. That's quite unfair. We shall see. I want to get into your drinking history. How much booze per day? And I'm going to skip a, a large portion of the story here, but it's a really cool interaction where it's Sean Murphy O'Connor and this group of 23 other um, recovering alcoholics where they're all trying to pry at this man to say, how much booze are you actually drinking a day? And he is just squirming. And then he gets kind of caught where they discover like he has booze stored here and here and here and here. And he gets angry and embarrassed, but then he quickly like jolts back with this kind of executive swagger and brings some control to the situation. But there's a turning point, and that's where I'm going to clue back in the story. And it's still in this line of kind of interrogation. And he says, uh, or Fred asked, have you ever been unkind to one of your kids, Max? Glad you brought that up, Fred. I have a fantastic rapport with my four boys. Last Thanksgiving, I took them on a fishing expedition to the Rockies. Four days of roughing it in the wilderness, a great time. Two of my sons just graduated from Harvard, you know, and Max Jr., he's in his third year at, and he gets interrupted. I didn't ask you that. At least once in your life, every father has been unkind to one of his kids. I'm 62 years old and I can vouch for it. Now give us a, a specific example, Fred said. A long pause ensued. Finally, well, I was, I was a little thoughtless with my nine-year-old daughter last Christmas Eve. What happened? I don't remember. I just get this heavy feeling every time I think about it. Where did it happen? What were the circumstances? Wait one minute. Max, Max's voice rose in anger. I told you, I don't remember. I just can't shake this bad feeling about it. Obtrusively, Murphy O'Connor dialed Max's hometown once more and spoke with his wife. We can give that a second. Great. Okay, just finding out where I was. Okay, obtrusively, Murphy O'Connor dialed Max's hometown once more and spoke with his wife. Sean Murphy O'Connor calling, ma'am. We're in the middle of a group therapy session, and your husband just told us that he was unkind to your daughter last Christmas Eve. Can you give me the details, please? A soft voice filled the room. Yes, I can tell you the whole thing. It seems like it just happened yesterday. Our daughter, our daughter Debbie, and I warn you, this is like a kind of graphic, but you'll see the point that I'm making. Our daughter, our daughter Debbie wanted a pair of earth shoes from her Chris, for a Christmas present. On the afternoon of December 24th, my husband drove her downtown, gave her 60 bucks, and told her to get the best pair of shoes in the store. And that is exactly what she did. When she climbed back into the pickup truck her father was driving, she kissed him on the cheek and told him that he's the best daddy ever. 
Max was preening himself like a peacock and decided to celebrate on the way home. He stopped at the Cork and Bottle, and that's a tavern a few miles from our house, and told Debbie he would be just right out. It was clear, and it was a clear and extremely cold day, about 12 degrees above zero. It's not our 12 degrees above zero, so it's like it's very cold. And so Max left the motor running and locked the both doors from outside so no one could get in, and it was a little after three in the afternoon. And silence. Sean Murphy O'Connor said, yes, yes, like with a question mark. The sound of heavy breathing crossed the recreation room. Her voice grew faint. She was crying. My husband met some old army buddies in the tavern. Swept up in the euphoria over the reunion, he lost track of time purpose and everything else. He came out of the cork and bottle at midnight. He was drunk. The motor had stopped running and the car windows were frozen shut. Debbie had badly frost, fro, had, Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and her fingers. When we got her to the hospital, the doctors had to operate. They amputated the thumb and the forefinger on her right hand. She's going to be deaf for the rest of her life. Max appeared to be having a coronary he struggled to his feet, making jerky, uncoordinated movements. His glasses flew left and his pipe flew right. He collapsed on all fours and sobbed hysterically. Murphy O'Connor stood up and said softly to the group, let's split. 24 recovering uh, alcoholics and addicts climbed the eight-step stairwell. We turned left, gathered along the railing on the upper split level and looked down. No man will ever forget what he saw that day the 24th of April at exactly high noon. Max was still in the doggy position. His sobs had soared to shrieks. Murphy O'Connor approached him, pressed his foot against Max's rib cage, and pushed. Max rolled over onto his back. You unspeakable slime, Murphy O'Connor roared. There's the door on your right and the windows on your left. Choose which one is, ever, which one is quicker. Get out of here before I throw up. I'm not running a rehab for liars. Then it continues on in the story. Later that same day, Max pleaded for and obtained permission to continue treatment. He proceeded to undergo the most striking personality change I've ever, wit ever witnessed. This is Brendan Manning, the author, talking. He got honest and became more open, sincere, vulnerable, and affectionate than any man in the group. Tough love had made him real, and the truth had set him free. Eventually, Max would go on to say his first prayer. What a wild story, eh? I was reading that as a 20-year-old and moved by it. I know when Jesus met that woman at the well, he, it wasn't tough love. That wasn't a tough love moment like for, for Max. But that was a, a moment of compassion for her and also a calling, calling out of behavior. So I have, I have a small amount of pastoral experience, like just a, a really short amount. But I've been working in this church in a pastoral capacity for five years. And I think as I'm understanding myself, I have kind of a knack for asking questions and, and trying to discover what's going on for people. And I've made kind of just two conclusions, and I'm sure they're common conclusions about people when they are dealing with unfortunate events in their life. So the first one is, is that something has typically genuinely happened to them that's absolutely outside of their control. I don't know what that is, just like a, an absentee father or a parent wound 
or some, some type of tragedy, and that needs to be met with compassion and help. Both of those, and I, and I mean that. But what is, and that's, that's sometimes just the case. Like I knew a girl in young life who uh, was sexually abused as a kid, and it was, th that's it, it's not complicated. It's that somebody did something to her, and she, there's no onus on her. But normally, it, it's twofold, and there's, it's not a bad answer. Where something has happened to somebody, but it's also a mixture of their own poor decisions. And uh, yeah, I've seen that. So that's not like a, a mind-blowing, uh, mind-blowing like observation. But it's this twofold experience. And what I see in that alcoholic story and in the, the story of the woman at the well is that Jesus has this interaction where he's inviting them to fresh perspective. And he's, he's treating them, there's a, there's a compassion exchange. But then there's also this invitation to like, hey, adjust your behavior because however you're acting, it's, it's reaping havoc in your life. It's destroying you. It's destroying your soul. And, and Jesus doesn't pull punches in the same way, probably not as rough as Sean Murphy O'Connor did. But he doesn't do that. And this is, this is a really kind of counterintuitive statement and I'm kind of playing the devil's advocate. But there is moments when we think that folks need compassion and Jesus doesn't think that. Just to name two of them that are big stories in the Bible. The first one is the woman caught in adultery. Yes, he has this compassionate exchange with her. We don't, we don't veer past that. No, that, that's, Jesus approaches people with compassion. But, but what he does do is he tells her to go sin no more. Then there's the man at the well. That he, he revives the man pretty well. Then he tells him, don't, 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 go, don't go on sinning. And you don't, you don't get too far in the Bible, in my opinion, to discover that, that God, God's like emotional disposition towards humanity and us as his children is one where he's, he's physically and, and emotionally charged with compassion. And there's moments where there's kind of a scale between justice and, and mercy. And, and justice kind of represents what's due for, for wrong decisions. And then there's, there's mercy, which is the choice to, to do something. Of, it's the choice of how you're going to handle the justice. And continually we see, we see God of the Bible, Yahweh, wiping away stuff. He's wiping away what's due. And he's either, he's either wiping it away or he's taking it on himself. And that is, I find that difficult to connect with emotionally. Like just these stories about God continuously showing mercy when that person deserves more. So I fortunately uh, have, a, have a couple examples in my life to, to go to that, where I can kind of connect with that more emotionally. And it's, it's often how my parents treat me, which is, which is a, yeah, my story, I guess. Some people connect with that topic in different ways than I do. And there was one time about a year ago, I'm sure we were all here, where my parent, my dad, like, like any other parent could do and likely feels, he was up here and there was a few of them giving like uh, some statement about me because I had just made like a progression in my step to becoming an ordained minister. And they're all sharing. And my dad made this offhanded comment, unrelated to me pretty well, about just us as a family and us as his kids. 
And he said, and it's one of those things that like when somebody says it, you don't know what about that they said, but it feels like it got branded on you and it's just this pause moment and it, it, it lingers in your mind. And he said this, he said, I'm always nervous about my kids, which parents, I'm sure you can relate to that. You're just, you're privately uh, anxious about how your kids are doing. Anybody relate, any parent in the room relate to that? Yeah. And he said that, and it was just this moment where I was like, huh, so there's something there that I, I have a slight disconnection to, or it might be where God's spirit is trying to illuminate an aspect of how I can relate to that spirit. My point here is, is that that is what is fueling and charging these interactions with God. It's from somebody who's concerned with us. And he's concerned us in the, in the way where he wants to relate to us, but he also wants to challenge us to be the best version of ourselves. And there's moments when you scrap all that and you just realize, wow, I'm a, I'm a child of God and nothing has to happen here. I'm just sitting with God. So for folks that just don't even have a, have a category for that, like a, they don't, there's no category for how to relate to God on that level where he's emotionally concerned for you. And I just invite you to suspend your judgment for a moment and get, get in front of the Gospels and read some stories about like the prodigal son where you get to really see God's relational and emotional disposition towards you. That's my encouragement. The point of the talk this morning, we're in this series about transition. The, my premises is, and this is my concluding statement, is that folks that transition well have the, the clarity of perspective to know that their interaction with Jesus at whatever their well is, it's not a one-time affair, but it one, it's one that happens continuously, where we go back to it. We keep going back to the well, and Jesus empathizes with our experience, and then he calls out the best version of ourselves. And that comes to us as a challenge sometimes, in the same way that he, he really spoke to the woman at the well and talked about her state of affairs with her all her different husbands. We're going to end it there, guys, and I'm going to end it just with a prayer. I don't think we're going to do a next song. And if you're looking for just like a, a perfectly clean, seamless transition from talk to us chattering, I don't even have music to play, so this prayer is it. Well, Lord, thanks for the opportunity to be in a community with these folks. And uh, thanks that you, you truly are weaving something together in our stories. And you're, you're present. And you're up to something. And even this morning, you, you're nervous about us. And not in a negative way, but in a way that points to your concern for us as individuals when we go and drive home. And uh, for us as a community and um, how we can really serve the city of mission at large. So thanks for that rich reality. That's, it's just promising. It's a reality that's real, and it's, and it's rich, and it's promising, and it's one that you continually invite us into deeper experiences with. So I, I just pray that folks leave here this morning with uh, a sense of your love for them. And that, that's who we are. We're, we're children of, of you, and we're loved by you. And, uh, and that, that's our baseline. That's our foundation. So in your name, Jesus, amen.